what do you do when you're under a lot of stress? Like what, what's your strategy for it? When you identify it, uh, how do you handle it? Yeah. So I guess I could think of a couple different ways that, um, approaches that I take, but, uh, one thing that I always default to, especially if I'm in a very stressful situation is something I, I learned from, you know, one of the, the Dale Carnegie books. Uh, and I think it, you know, the book is called like how to stop worrying and it has a very pragmatic kind of tool set. And it pretty much first asks you, you know, in that stressful situation that you're in, especially as it relates to anxiety or worrying, it first asks you, what are you worrying about? Right. And you write that down. And then the second thing is, you know, what can you do about it? Right. And then, and then the third thing is kind of like, you know, why aren't you doing that about it? All right. Actually, you know, there's, I think there's like seven steps, but, uh, and I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. kind of shortening it up a bit, but that always helps me figure out kind of what's going on. And the most important thing I think for me is, uh, is collecting the facts, right? Because a lot of times we make assumptions and we jump to a conclusion and that's why we are worrying. Uh, whereas if you write it down, you kind of identify, okay, I need to collect the facts that then I could figure out what to do about it. It makes a lot of sense. Get out of your head and onto paper where it can be somewhat factual, assuming your eyes aren't affected by the stress and it's changing the, the words on the page. Um, <laughs> Which happens. Yeah, that happens to people. The, uh, is there anything going on currently that's stressing you out? Anything uh, heavy weighing on you? I mean, I think this time of, of year, just kind of, um, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be one to say that, you know, just wrapping up things from from the end of the year are always uh, a little bit stressful. You know, taxes being one of them. Not that it's like this huge thing. You have to deal with it every year. But, um, you know, that that's one thing that I've been kind of in the trenches on right now. Yeah. And you have a, a number of things that you work on. So I imagine you have like what, three organizations that you probably have to play in particular with taxes. There's some things where you're like, you're on the board, so they probably don't let you touch the taxes. That's not your responsibility. But I think there's like three things where you're probably having to deal with the taxes on it. Right. Yeah. I, I would say there's, um, you know, I am involved with a couple different organizations and I'd love to jump into what those are, but um, fortunately I've, I've kind of detached from like uh, mm. uh, dealing with the books on, on that side of things. Um, so a lot of it is kind of just streamlined and sometimes it'll come to me and I'll be like, okay, yeah, this looks good. Or this, this sounds right. Um, so, so the, the, the kind of like heavy in the books fortunately have kind of been lifted. Uh, That's nice. Yeah. yeah. So it's just personal taxes you have to worry about. Personal taxes and and just kind of organizing all the different kind of things. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think you know, with with um, with any type of paperwork, it's it's always um, it's always kind of for me. I always leave it to be like last minute. And this year, I'm pushing myself not to make it last minute. And so I think that's why I'm kind of in it now. Whereas if we were at like uh, right before the deadline, I would have been like, okay, I'm not, I'm not scheduling anything around this time. I'm going to have to focus on this to get it done uh, and then go from there. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think actually it's, you know, it's good to think, I didn't even realize until you asked the question, but it's good to think that I am kind of trying to prioritize that early. If that's one of the bigger things I'm worried about, I'm trying to prioritize that early versus always kind of getting it done right before the deadline. Yeah. 
on some level, it's probably just like sitting there in the back of your mind, like, oh, I got to get to that this week and I have to get to that, you know, next week and whatever heck it's going to be. So it's it, by dealing with it now, even if it's just like a little bit, and then you're like, hey, I'm going to do a draft now, like a stupid draft. And then I'm going to look at it, you know, next week. Like you can like really free up your mind to work on some of these other important things that you're working on. I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned something that's really important and, and that's that, you know, when you save something to be at the end, like near the deadline, you don't have time to do what I call marinating, right? Like, I think you're so right, especially with books or taxes or anything important, paperwork, whatever it may be. Um, it's important that you don't, you know, when you have a deadline, sometimes you'll you'll do it focused and carefully to get it done, but you don't have time to kind of go about your day, maybe watch a show, take a shower and like think about it because I do feel like your mind is still processing it, even though you're not actively working on it, you're letting it marinate. And sometimes you end up figuring things out and maybe even thinking about things you were not thinking about. And so I used to, excuse me, I used to do this in school actually, is I would do a little bit of studying and then I would like purposefully like cut myself off. And then I would, I would watch, you know, it's, it's, it's strange to say it now, but a lot of times what I would do is I would watch the Cosby show because I was, you know, big fan of the Cosby show. Uh, can't really watch that now, but um, but I would, you know, watch TV or something and then kind of get back to studying. Nowadays, it might be like gardening or even, you know, in, in the shower is, is you know, when you do all, all, all of your thinking. Um, but I think it's important to, you know, give something a couple of days and then go back to it. Um, and, and you end up thinking about things you, you didn't think about before. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, on that note, taking that even further is, is, you know, meditation. And I don't know if you want to go into that rabbit hole, but that's something I, I, I'd love to chat about as well. Sure. Yeah. I'm uh, generally curious what people do to like shock their system. I think there's a lot of people that recommend like cold showers or like an ice bucket, uh, ice bucket, but like an ice bath. And I haven't curious. Uh, there's been a couple of people I've had on where we've talked about this, where they say that they have like the next like couple hours is really powerful after they have like a really cold shower or like an ice bath, which is like on the state of like meditation. It's like, well, why don't, why don't you just like optimize your day to like where you, once you start noticing a dip, you like jumped into a cold state for like 60 seconds, then you had like another three hours, then you jumped into it again. So you can just like really maximize your day and focus. I don't know if you get the same effect with uh, meditation. <laughs> so you don't have to like uh, punish yourself. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I you know, a couple of things come to mind. So I, I've done the ice baths before and well, mm -hmm. no, I, I shouldn't say I've never done like, you know, put ice in the bathtub and go in. I haven't done that, but I have taken like super cold showers and, yeah. and it, you know, it takes a while to get used to, or maybe you just do it at the end of a shower, but I have, you know, when I take those super cold showers, when you come out and I, I don't know how, how it is for you, but when, you, when I come out, my breathing is, is deeper, is heavier. It feels like I just took, um, you know, a, a just drank a really strong coffee or something. And it's, it's really exhilarating. Um, other things that, that I do, um, that kind of give me that is, is actually adjust lighting, right? Um, there, I, I have a pretty bright light here. It's not for lighting for my camera, but it's to kind of keep me focused. Um, and so that's very helpful. That's something that I've done that, that's helpful. The meditation for me is not a, a direct effect afterwards. It, it's more of just kind of, you know, coming back to, to one place and maybe, uh, you know, relieving some stress or whatever it may be. Um, but there are definitely things I've done to kind of give me that jolt of, of energy coffee included. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, if, if you ever guinea pig yourself on any of the things we just like, you know, like every like three hours or something, let me know on the on the data so I can start, you know, accruing this, then I, we'll put it up there. Uh, listeners can give me their data too in terms of like, is that effective or not? We can give people some results on it, however anecdotal. Um, do you, uh, and this is kind of an esoteric question, but do you feel like you have a life's purpose or in the sense of knowing what it is or that it is achievable to be known? If it is something you can know, what yeah. is yours? I think... I, I, there, there is not one purpose that I, I think of, um, but there are a couple times in life where I've realized that, okay, this is what I should do in life. Um, and I mean, you, you have had a, a historic medical issue, like in, in, in your past, you've had a medical issue, um, that you resolved. And I think that was a powerful story when then either we were chatting about it or I read it somewhere. I think we must've talked about it. Um, and I think for me, I, you know, I had something like that too with, with childhood cancer and there's definitely a mindset like before I had cancer. And then after I had cancer at the age of 16 and I, and so to answer your question, I wouldn't say that I, I kind of know what it is to that my goal is in life. Um, but I have kind of identified that, you know, life is not just this thing you plug into and, and continue going on, that you should actively be not just mindful from a meditation standpoint, but but very actively being to kind of pursue different things on a on a daily basis. And and to kind of link it to a kind of company related work, um, I was looking at one of my pitch decks from a, a previous startup that I had. And, you know, what we're doing now in alternative proteins is, is you know, what I like to think of like big stuff. And I can go into the details, but, you know, the, the, the problem slide on this pitch deck from my previous startup was something along the lines of like, you know, advertisers are spending billions of dollars that are lost at retail uh, uh, end caps, right? Shelves. And, and when I look at the, you know, the problem slide that we are, you know, for the startup I'm, I'm at now, um, which is like, you know, saving, uh, you know, inspiring people and bringing optimized nutrition to the world. Like those are totally different things so much that I, I, I was thinking like, you know, what was I even like trying to do at that previous startup, like saving advertisers money? And so, so I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting way to, to look at things. And, um, but, you know, with that, but with all that being said, I don't know if there's that one thing that I say, you know, I'm, I'm here to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Do you find that it's, uh, as to the extent you look at other people and then think like, oh, do they do similar things to me? Am, am I like on the right track or whatever? Like not in a comparison way, but it's just like a, like a self-assessment. Do you find it's easier for you to make decisions going through the, the fact that you had cancer compared to like the average person? Cause I think the average person I, I think has a tendency to think that they are, especially as they're younger, like about our age group or lower, um, they feel like they're invulnerable and like, they're just going to be another day. So that I've noticed like when it comes to really hard decisions, people who haven't had stuff like that, it's like, they, they kind of delay it a little bit. They take a little bit more time. I'm just curious if you, if you experienced that as it compares to your peers, like you're a little bit more decisive in what you do. You're a little bit more like on the nose, even if you are like doing, you know, helping out advertisers or whatever, like you're a little bit more snap too, in terms of the decisions, like, you know, like the quality of a day. I, I think, 
I mean, I, I when you ask that question, I, I think the answer is is yes. Maybe a little bit less so now that you know other people have you know in our age group have gone through some hardships, uh, and it has kind of defined them as well. But you know, I remember going back to high school after my treatment was done, and I mean, the things that I was worrying about before getting really good grades in in physics class, for example. Uh, it was like strange to me that those were things that I was really focused on, right? Not that it didn't matter, um, but it, it just, you know, it it put things in perspective that, you know, this is the life that we live. It might not last that much longer. And even if it does last long, the time on earth is limited. You know, you shouldn't necessarily be worrying so much, uh, driving yourself mad uh, that you didn't get the grade you wanted on, on a type of test. So, I think, you know, immediately I, I think about that specifically, um, how I felt when I went right back to school. Um, it was a very different demeanor. And I think nowadays, um, I think nowadays, you know, there are certain things that I, I do feel like I could make quick decisions on um, because of that experience. Uh, but uh, but I think, you know, not so much more than everybody else, because I, I, I do feel like if you look at the the way life is is kind of progressing for everybody life has life has bumps in the road and and each bump kind of shapes you so i feel like you know for me my experience was cancer at age 16 whereas other people in their in their 30s uh, 20s 30s 40s might might uh, might have other bumps in the road that they have that pivoting that pivot point uh for mm-hmm. you know, um it is weird that for the most part people are like you're expect here's most people peak in terms of like are considered to be in their prime in their 40s and 50s that's like right around the corner do you feel like that's weird in terms of like you know like next like i don't know how old you are but like next 10 20 years like that's when you peak like you're you're in your prime you're not in your prime yet you're still learning like you're still growing into what the prime of human is like that people consider to be prime i i think um yeah i i don't know i i don't know about that because i think um i think that I, I, I maybe I don't like the 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 definition of prime, right? Because I feel like um, every day should be your prime, and I know that's not you know actually what it is. But I think I think for every age, right, you you have certain things that are uh, that should be kind of good for you at that relevant time. Um, I do feel like the older you get, the more you learn, and I do feel like um, you know more people should be starting startups, for example, in their 70s. But maybe that's because I think that's an exciting thing to do. Maybe when you're 70, it's not that exciting. Um, but, I, but I do feel like it's, it's really relative. Um, and that, you know, you know, a prime should not be missed. And, and maybe a prime is not right now because you're in a slump. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't be in your prime all the time. And maybe that's why I don't like the definition. Maybe it breaks it up a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, at the same time, just like as it relates to age, internally, when you think about how old you are, is there an age that comes to mind? So I'm 33 or 34. I, I'm not sure because I, I kind of just stopped calculating after age 30, right? Um, and and I, I think that... Um, I think that I, when, you know, after the the whole 
you know, cancer thing, I, I do feel like I was a little bit older than my age. Um, but now I don't necessarily feel that. Um, I, I do feel that, um, you know, there are other people that are maybe a little bit older or younger and they're doing same things as me or even greater things at me as me. Um, but I don't really see that as, as necessarily a comparison. Um, but I would say that I, you know, I, I feel my, my age and, and I think over the next, um, over the next 10 years or so, I, I might, uh, I might feel more my age or less my age as I, uh, as I have trouble either, uh, exercising or, or something like that. I'll probably physically feel it, but, um, right now I, I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, outside of the age where that I am. Whereas, you know, after kind of that experience I had in, in high school, I did feel like it, it kind of made me think of, of things in a different way. Yeah. That makes sense. So there's a, a lot of people either feel younger than they are like mentally, not, you know, uh, physically and stuff, but some people feel, most people feel like they're like 23, to, to four to like 14 i don't know so uh, it's, it's kind of curious I'm like gathering data on this for these questions um what do you think happens to you and this is a fun uh, question to ask you what do you think happens to you when you die yeah um i've thought a lot about like what happens to you from a standpoint of like your thoughts um and and it's it, i do feel like it, it you know yeah, this is an interesting question. I guess to answer it as raw as possible, I feel like, you know, when you die, you kind of go into this darkness, um, but it's not like a, a darkness where, you know, it's a bad thing. It's a different type, you know, you, you don't have consciousness. It's a darkness. And, and I think that's that. I think that um, you might, uh, you know, you, you I, I feel like when you're living, right? Um, there are, you know, this idea of, um, others around you that have passed that kind of guide your way. I do believe in that. Um, but not from the sense that, you know, there are ghosts and that, you know, their consciousness continues going, uh, but more of like, you know, you do have memories of certain people that kind of come and contribute to your life when you're living. Um, and so beyond that, you know, I haven't thought about it too much, but what I have thought about is that, you know, that you, you should be aware of the, uh, that the time you have on this earth is, is limited and that one day, uh, you, you know, you will die. And I think thinking about that regularly does kind of ground you a bit. Um, there are a couple of different teachings in, in the, in the meditations that I do that, that talk about that. Um, but I haven't researched them too much. Um, and I think more people should be, you know, less afraid of, of death, uh, not just from those around them, but for themselves as well. And I think if you do think about that, it actually makes that purpose we were talking about earlier a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, meaningful, right? That, that you do have limited time on this earth and that, you know, although a year or a decade might seem fast or, or, or actually long, um, you know, it is a finite amount of time and that every day that you have you should be doing the things that you want. Um, I want to also kind of point back to what you said earlier about like feeling the age that you're in. I remember, you know, when I was younger, I always thought, oh, I'm always, I'm going to do this later in life, right? 
Um, and I think now in my 30s, I'm starting to think, well, I don't want to push things off to do later in life. I want to actually start planning. And if it makes sense, maybe do them now. Um, and so that, that, that I think is, is interesting as, as well. Mm -hmm. So you think that, is it the same dark type of darkness that existed before we were born? So you just go back to that or is it some continuity of spirit? Yeah, I would say it might. Yeah. It would be similar to before you were born. Yeah. Before we were born. Right. And, and there so, is probably a clicking point to where you have consciousness, you know, in, in the womb where you're thinking, or when you start thinking like, okay, I'm somewhere, you know, maybe you don't say it like those words in, in, in thought, but you know, you have this realization that I am somewhere. And then when you're, when you're born, it's like, oh man, I, I'm here. I feel it. I see it. I'm here. Mm -hmm. So there's no like, like fluffy clouds in this, this thing. So when people die, they, they just, that's it. They're just like stardust at that point. We just get broken down by worms. You know, that that's the way I, I feel it is. Yeah. And, and, and maybe there's like this concept of a soul where you're reincarnated into some, either another person or another, you know, animal or something like that. Um, and I, I like to imagine that and, and, you know, physically we are right. If you, if you think about it. Um, uh, and so, you know, I don't know. I don't think about the concept of a soul too much. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, there's a, uh, I think Andy Weir wrote a, a short story called Egg. If you ever read it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's the the basic premise. I don't spoil it for anyone. It's very short. But if 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 true evil does exist, what do you think it looks like? What where, where, what would it look like to you in the world? Evil. Yeah. Yeah, evil. I mean, I guess, you know, just like we have different... Um, you know, thoughts and emotions that make us feel happy or, or sad. I would say that, uh, you know, evil comes from, from that. Um, I think that, you know, anyone is capable of doing something that we would consider being evil. Um, some people do things that are considered being evil that maybe they don't mean to. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, mean, I feel like sometimes people get a little bit um, outside of their, you know, typical way of thinking, and that could cause, you know, mean things to happen, and then take that to the extreme, and maybe I would call that evil. Uh, I haven't heard of egg, but I, I'm definitely interested in learning more about it. Yeah, so uh, you think like the guy who invented like the Cadillac converter and put lead in it, and exposed an entire gener you know, multiple generations to that would be an unintentional evil. You haven't experienced like a, a sociopath trying to like hunt you, <laughs> hunt you down to and kill you. So like that's that's off the table. But you haven't like you haven't seen um, you see you see bad in the world. But you don't see evil. I mean, I I mean, you you definitely see. I guess the con this concept of evil every day. If, if you look at the news with mass shootings and, and things like yeah. that, um, you know, the lead example in a catalytic converter um, or lead in anything like paint or or even, you know, the Roundup debacle or asbestos, that kind of thing. I, I would, you know, I, I guess there are evils in that. If somebody knew about it and didn't try to to stop it, right? That that would be a little bit more evil. I think you know the example specifically I was thinking about is is um, uh, you know evil of you know let's say you work for a a, a meat company um, and uh, and you're you're not looking to to slaughter more animals, but that is your job, right? So that's kind of a a, a way to think about. Um, 
this like accidental evil if you think about if you think about that um and it was it was i was talking to uh josh bulk on on one of our our podcasts and you know he said you know the people that work at the the egg or the uh, meat companies you know they don't necessarily go to work every day thinking how many more chickens can i kill (laughs) right um they do think about how can we make this business more profitable and maybe in turn that ends up you know killing more animals um, but I do feel like, you know, it's that, that's kind of like the unintentional evil that I was thinking about. Is it evil if it keeps kids from starving to death? Yeah. Like what makes I mean, that, uh, evil, I guess. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that, that's one aspect of the business that makes it not evil. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just because, yeah, I guess evil can, you know, the in the broader scope of things maybe that's not such an evil thing but um but you know maybe in in other aspects it, it can be considered evil i think yeah. you know I, I, and i'm not vegan right so yeah. I, by my own definition i'm 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 a little bit evil every time i'm eating meat um and uh and i think that you know you mentioned you mentioned a very good point that that there are certain things that actually bring um, higher weight to, um, to different aspects of society. Uh, in this example, it would be like killing a a chicken to save a human, which I believe, uh, should happen because, you know, us humans need to look out for each other. There are these concepts in the animal welfare industry of, I think it's called, um, speciesism where, you know, it's not good to put other species down when, uh, you know, when it comes to like eating meat and, and things like that. Um, but I, I don't really agree with that. I haven't looked at it. Excuse me. I haven't looked at that or studied those philosophies too deeply. But, um, you know, if, if there's given a chance to save a, a, a human versus an animal, I think, you know, it's a, a no brainer unless it's one somebody that is you know, definitely downright evil, um, that, uh, that you'll save that human uh, over the animal every single time. Yeah. Do you, um, so do you want animals to not be killed at all? Like if, if everything could be just like, you know, a little cell grow it out and we had the technology, like if we were like 10,000 years ago, we don't have that option today. We have that option. If we roll out that option, so it's an option universally, you wouldn't want any animal to be, to, to be killed. I think it, you know, the question is like, why are animals being killed, right? Um, if we have to kill the animals to achieve something that we want to achieve, um, then, and, and there's, you know, and there's no other solution, then then that will happen because we want to advance the human race, right? Um, but, but you know, instead of thinking about this uh, a little bit more, um, uh, instead of thinking about it more theoretically, you know, let's talk about actual meat consumption right now. Right. Do we need to be killing so many animals to thrive to, to thrive as a human race? Um, probably not. Should we go away from eating as much meat as we are? Um, we definitely should. Is that easy to make that change? No, but uh, I think that we are making advancements to, to get there. Um, and I think it's you know no different than finding um, better ways to communicate than uh, you know. Uh, than it is to find better ways to to have our our food system uh, as best it can be, uh, whether that means 
eating foods that are healthier or even cleaner. Um, and, you know, and, and I think finding different ways to consume protein uh, can be just as delicious, uh, just as nutritious, if we find these alternative methods. Now, I want to actually say that I do believe, you know, that there are many benefits to eating animal proteins versus just plant-based proteins. And I think that's why it's so exciting to be, you know, working in a field where you are looking at things like lab-grown meat or fermentation-based proteins and that kind of thing. So, um, and I, I, I went on a, a, a riff there, so I <laughs> forgot what the original no, question it, it was. was uh... It was, uh, uh, I, I visibly saw you have like one of those mental stubbings of your toes where yeah. like, it, it's like, this is something you care very much about. <laughs> you yeah. know, like when, when you like have like a conversation, like you, you say something and people just, you know, uh, so I, I enjoyed it. I, well, I'm, I'm really trying to ascertain before we get into, you know, some of the meteor things that you're working on is, do you believe that animals have some, some equivalent to humans in value? Like, you know, like if humans, like some people think that he, uh, animals should be on the same rank as humans in terms of like how they're appreciated and how they're treated and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of trying to get a, a sense because you eat animals. So, I mean, I doubt you'd eat a, a human for a variety of reasons, I hope. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, like, do, do you value them? I guess another way, if you want to like look at it from numbers, I don't know if you'd want to, but like how many, <laughs> how many cow, like if there's, there, there's a train coming down, down the tracks, you have the lever, there's a human on one side and there's, how many animals need to be on the other side for you to pull the switch and save the cows and let the human die? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good way to, um, that's a really good way to, um, set up the example. Uh, I don't know if I could think of any number of animals that, mm. uh, would be worth sacrificing a, a human life. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. so, I mean, if it's, yeah. I mean, in this raw example, if you're not thinking about all the other <laughs> factors, right? Like, will people starve if that many animals die and that kind of stuff, right? Um, I think, I think you know, humans should look after humans. And I think yeah. other animals should look after other animals. And they do. Um, which is yeah. why it's so crazy that, that, you know, there are humans slaughtering humans out there as well, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, what, I, I do believe that we need to look out for our, our own. Yeah. Makes sense. The, uh, so a, a similar type of parable. Um, if so, there's a a person was murdered, and they there were four people near the murder site that got picked up. The you're the judge, and three of the people definitely committed the murder. Like God whispered this in your ear. Three of them did it. One of them did not. Is a completely innocent, which is sort of walking walk his dog. Um, the punishment for murder is you get hang, hanged, um, and or all the way down to like, if you just say them all innocent, they go away. So, but you only, you have whatever punishment you give goes to all of them equally. What punishment do you give the, the four people knowing that one is innocent and three are not? Yeah, this is a, again, if we're looking at it just at this example, <laughs> yeah. I th I think, um, and what I forgot what they did. They killed a human. Yeah, they killed a human. Like, well, they did more than that in the example I'm giving, but like, I don't want to like yeah. say the R word and stuff. So like they did, they did not, they did very inhumane things yeah. to a human. Yeah. The three people, one of them was just walking his dog, having to get picked up. But you don't know, yeah. you have to give the a punishment uniform. So, you know, like as an example, you could say, well, 
uh, I averaged the guilt of the four, and now they're all getting 20 years in prison. I don't know, but I'm just curious what your, what your thought process is to arrive at the judgment and what your judgment is. Yeah. Well, I, I originally, I think I think you said uh, get hanged, right? So yeah, you, so. that that is the actual punishment for killing and doing these things in this yeah. in this time of Humurabi is to you you get you get killed. So like if you you want that punishment, they all die, they all get uh, hung. Yeah, uh, I I don't know. I mean, this is a tough one. I, I I'd like to say that you know again we're looking at the raw example, um, but I don't know if I could make a decision here because. You know, you don't want somebody who's innocent to 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 die. Um, yet you don't want you know these evil folks to to you know kind of walk away scot free. Um, in my in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, if these people are doing these bad things, then you know it'll catch up to them eventually. So if you let everybody go, then eventually they'll um, you know they'll get caught, but, uh, but then, you know, you, you risk more bad things happening, but, um, I don't know. I, I think for this one, I will have to, you know, pass. I, I can't really, you can't pass. You got to get, you can't pass. It, it sounds like you're, you can't pass. I want to hear your answer. Yeah. You <laughs> That's know, what's fun about it. Yeah. I don't, this is tough. I, I, you can set them all free. There's not like, yeah. no one's going to like hit you with a stick. You can do, do whatever yeah. you feel is appropriate. So I, you heard I your feel, logic. Now you just right. need a decision. Yeah. You know, my original thought would be to set everybody free because, you know, it'll come back to those that do bad. That's you know? interesting. Um, so one innocent life. To save one innocent life. Right. Um, yeah. That That's my initial thought. Um, yeah. You know, because because I guess, you know, two things will happen. One, they'll do something bad again. And although there'll be repercussions, then, you know, they, they might get caught. Um, or two, they might not do that again. And uh, although it was very bad um, what they did, then... Um, then they won't do it again. Right. So yeah. I, I don't know. This is tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some longtime listeners are going to be like, why is Lowell asking these questions? <laughs> and it's because uh, in our preamble, one of the, we talked and you were like, uh, please stay away from deep scientific questions. So I was like, well, uh, philosophy sounds fun today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's, a, it's, I don't know. I think they're interesting questions. I don't yeah. normally get like to ask these uh, questions outside of like a party uh, setting. As you can imagine, like how much fun it might be to <laughs> ask, oh. like, are you freeing or killing people today? So, yeah, well, um, I, th I think what would be interesting is looking at some of the different philosophies for doing different yeah. things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and that's yeah, fun. Yeah, and and maybe historically also, you know, why certain things are the way they are. Uh, I I I think one thing that you know, as you were asking that questions, it made me really appreciate the 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 ju judicial system, right? Um, that there is this kind of process that we have for for this and. And although sometimes things might go one way or another, you know, there is a process. Yeah. Our justice system is based off of this question. How, uh, but there is a number of innocent lives people are willing to sacrifice for uh, some semblance of justice. Yeah. So like that's, that, that's the interesting thing about it. The, it's actually quite an interesting parallel between the justice system or uh, really any system like the FDA, any regulatory approval. It's, how how stringent this needs to be to like stop innovation and potentially cause harm at the same time. Right. Uh, fun questions. Like there's no real hard answer. It yeah. just comes down to people. I think um, you also think about it, you know, when in war, right, there are always yeah. a number of casualties, right? Innocent casualties mm -hmm. that are involved. Um, and, and with any type of kind of uh, uh, decision, there is a number of, of, there is a threshold, right? Hopefully that threshold is not 25%, which is what it was in this case, but, but there is a threshold. 
um, that I think, uh, I guess, depends on the situation. Yeah. My answer is always call for. So anyways, uh, <laughs> what, what, uh, can you explain what, uh, if I'm, I, I've never heard the title said, so if you could help me with this, is it Balletic Foods? Balletic? Balletic? Yeah. So, so Balletic Foods, uh, based okay, off I'm of, right. yeah, based off of ballet. So something that okay. is, you know, Balletic, uh, comes from ballet. I talk to people in China, in the Middle East, and I would, there's like four or five different re- ways to read every word now. And it like trips me up. And uh, I'm always very clear on uh, trying to answer things. Uh, but anyways, so in terms of the food system of uh, what is, what does Balletic Foods do for the people who are just now hearing about it? Yeah. So Balletic Foods is an alternative protein startup. And uh, the, the goal or kind of the mission of Balletic Foods is to one, inspire people. I think it was very important for us to have that in there, inspire people and to make uh, optimized nutrition or nutrition universally accessible. And so our focus is on optimized nutrition. What does that mean? Optimized nutrition is that nutrition is, for example, in the case of protein, eating a protein, how much of that protein is absorbed in your body before it's kind of, you know, shedded away, right? And when you look at alternative proteins, there's a lot of plant-based proteins that are very popular. But you look at some of the what we call quality levels of these proteins, um, animal protein score is very high, which means most of what you're consuming in animal protein uh, does get used in your body uh, and not just kind of like exhausted out. So what we're working on is is creating proteins that are highly uh, optimized and what we consider this higher quality uh, to be retained gram for gram in your body. Uh, and so that's the focus. Um, and the, the company is, uh, just about, I think 18 months old or so. And, uh, um, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, um, uh, it, it's, you know, earlier I was telling you that I was working on a startup where, you know, to save advertisers millions of dollars, I think thinking about what we're doing here is, um, is just so different that, um, that, you know, what we do on a, on a daily basis um, is a very large scale kind of type, you know, type of thing. Whereas projects that I've worked on in the past, uh, or I should say that, you know, startups that I've worked on in the past have been, you know, the focus has been business. Whereas what we're doing at Balletic, the, the focus is is solving a, a problem that I think is a, is a very big problem. How is it are you able to get it comparable with me? It meets the gold standard in terms of absorption to the human body. And the human body, let's just say on average the human body, because then there's people that have like difference in terms of how they absorb uh, proteins and of that. But if if, uh, hum- if meat, I was about to say human meat, it's like, my God. But uh, if meat uh, is the gold standard, are you able to reach that standard or is it even possible to exceed it with what you guys have going on? Yes, okay. It's ground oh, no. beef, right? But hold um, up, you're, uh, so, you're breaking up. Um, I think I lost you for a second. Yeah, I lost okay, you for a second. Can you hear me now? So I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. So uh, I, I can didn't hear, hear anything now. after gr- ground beef. I, I heard ground beef, but it went. Oh, okay. I think that's the last thing I said. So our benchmark is ground beef. And so mm-hmm. if ground beef scores like a 99, you can actually go. Um, uh, actually, the, ground beef is our benchmark. 
Um, but there are ways you could optimize it to go uh, even higher than ground beef. Um, for example, you know, goat milk is is uh, very high in in protein, and and I I think more people should be drinking goat milk if they, if they want more uh, absorption uh, from from consuming protein. Um, you know, we're able to achieve higher than than those benchmarks, um, and you do this by mixing different types of proteins. Um, and when you look at some of the plant based protein numbers, uh, for example, pea protein or even soy protein, they're scoring very low. Uh, and the scoring system is, is known as a DIAS or digestible indispensable mm -hmm. amino acid score. Um, and so you look at pea protein, soy protein, these are scoring pretty low. So a lot of that you can, a lot of the protein that you consume actually gets kind of, you know, wasted and is, is not, yeah. uh, uh, is not retained by the system. Whereas animal proteins are usually scoring higher, goat milk, for example, scores pretty high. Uh, and if you get the nice uh, a nice ratio of uh, of these different types of proteins, it can score a little bit higher. And so that's what the team is is working on. What my focus on is on um, is more of being able to take that product and uh, really get it into a distribution and manufacturing pipeline. So I'm a little, you know, I'm I'm. I, I said, you know, we can't go into the deep science because my background is not biotech. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, but, but you know, what I have been learning on and, and or learning about and what my background is uh, based on um, is being able to take this process and, and really get it into the hands of the right people. Oftentimes in a food technology company like this, um, that's a long process. We're talking about, you know, 12 to 18 months just to start talking to the right people and, and, and getting the- So it's B2B? The, uh, yes, it's a, it's a B2B ingredient product. And so um, when we're looking at some of the these you know, sales pipelines that we're looking at, it's very important to make sure that you know, who we're talking to is, is the right fit in terms of distribution and that there's an interest and, and mission alignment there. Um, whether you know, it, it's selling you know, ingredients like this or other types of things, you know, B2B is something that is very relationship-based, takes a long time. And so we're just, you know, we hit the ground uh, running and, and that's kind of like what my focus is on is finding out and, and really delivering, you know, how can we get this type of protein uh, to the right people when we're ready to, to uh, manufacture at scale. Now, one thing yeah. that I've been learning about that I, I don't have, or I have not had so much experience in is, is really building the facility that can, that can do that. And after mm -hmm. touring different facilities, you know, my concept of what a food or ingredient manufacturer was before is totally different now. And the amount of technology that's being used is, is actually quite uh, impressive. Um, and, you know, before I even started looking up alternative proteins, uh, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad had a farm, small organic farm in, in Hollister, California. And I saw a lot of inefficiencies on the farm and I was thinking, wow, there are so many different ways that we could optimize this process with technology, whether it's, you know, drones or even uh, very basic apps connected to modules for watering systems, irrigation, all that kind of stuff. And, and what I've learned is that there are so many startups that are very deeply invested in pretty much automating farming. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine, you know, a, a large scale 3D printer on two, three acres of land planting and harvesting, you know, a lot of that technology is, is done. 
that's what kind of originally got me interested in going into some sort of food tech. Fast forward now, seeing how maybe a little bit further down the pipeline, ingredients are be, being um, uh, stored and packaged and processed. It's a really, really exciting thing, such as, you know, you'll see huge factories that are that don't have more than, uh, you know, five or six people working at, at there at any given time because so much of it is is automated. And I think mm. at Balletic, we're definitely, as of now, quite a ways away from that, but we're starting to plan what it would look like if we are producing X amount of our protein uh, in this very large scale. And I think from the, you know, the technology person in, inside me is super excited about that because not only is it a, a field that's already very advanced, um, but I do feel like there's a lot more advancement that we can bring um, to the table. And, and that's what I'm excited about. Yeah. What, where does the protein come from? Is it like Ryza where it's a uh, mycelium or, or, or what? Yeah. So um, the, a lot of that is above my head, right? It goes over my head, but um, there are a couple of different microorganisms that we are using to find the, the oh, best. So from yeast? Uh, I, 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 I think there's, it's beyond yeast and a couple different things. And I listened to your podcast with, uh, with Paul and I actually, I actually learned a lot about, um, you know, fungi and what fungi means. Um, but, but yeah, that a lot of that is, goes over my head. Yeah. Everyone knows that fungi is just a good person to be around. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, it sounds like it's like a, like a genetically engineered, yeast then produces the protein that you probably derive from goat milk because you keep referencing that. I'm just like uh, like looking between the lines and what you're saying and trying to guess uh, yeah, where it comes I mean, from. You're, you're right in the general process. You know, we're not doing anything with goat milk. I think that that's mm. just kind of like an outlier that I think is interesting <laughs> okay. if you if you look at the numbers. Um, yeah. But uh, but yes. And so, you know, there there is additional literature about, you know, questions like, is it genetically engineered? And answers like, you know, GE is used or bioengineering is used in the process, but the final output is not, uh, you know, GMO and, and that kind of thing. Um, but those are all things that we're optimizing and, and, and developing right now. Yeah. Um, hmm. uh, oh, I won't, I won't like hit you with science questions then. The, uh, there's like four or five I'm curious about. The, I, um... I won't be able to answer this. <laughs> yeah, no and, and not just because I, I, I can, but also because I, you know, that's not where, where I'm focusing. No, on. no worries. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, we started with some really fun questions like, uh, where, where do you go when you die? So it's, it's, it's all right. If we have to like table some of these ones. Uh, but I think that's a general gist. And if there's like a, a scientist on your team, maybe we can like have them like in clip, like, like over your face, this is how it works. But, uh, so is it, what is, what is, you know, it's, I don't know. It's like a Seinfeld joke. Like what is with that airline food? What is with, uh, companies such as yours going the B2B route, like Paul, uh, versus like having any component that could be B2C. Um, if it is so nutrition and it has such a high absorption value, uh, there's like one in four children in America that, uh, go without food to some extent to the point where it's deforming their brains. They're not like, they, they lose about like 10 IQ points compared to what they could be. So I could see like a, a small B to, well, I guess that's B to G, but you could like find a way to like, you know, you, you have some, uh, corporate B2B revenue what's coming in and, and like in some B2B, what's the G and B2G. Uh, business to government. Oh, okay. I, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah. Uh, I think school systems count as a government. Um, okay. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's technically like the defense sector is like B2G. Cause like, I see. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of people out like that would need that type of thing. How do you guys, uh, is there any plans or anything 
in your thoughts about how uh like you know some people if they have like sandals that are like ethically sourced and all these other things about it they'll give like sandals or shoes to people in africa who don't have shoes do you guys have any intention or any intentionality in as you guys have something being built up to um like in america for instance if there's a, a funny uh quote from crazy rich asians where like the asians are <laughs> some of the asians are eating around the table and um they're saying hey you need to eat all your food there's starving kids in america <laughs> so is there any intentionality or any thoughts into doing something like that or is it just too soon I, I think I think that's definitely a, a goal once we get to levels of production is to be able to uh, to get there. I think that that is something that we are thinking of from day one. You know, as I said, uh, our mission statement is is about making this type of protein protein universally accessible. Um, to do that, we need to produce very, very large amounts. And so I think that you know eventually we will be able to get to the point where we can, uh, you know, swap out existing types of foods with our optimized uh, ingredients, right? Um, and so I think that's that's very important to us. I think it's it's definitely later down the road before we can execute on that. Yeah. Uh, but going to this what you said about B two C, you know, with a background in 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 brand and design, you know, B two C B two C has always been very exciting for me. And we actually launched um, the company with a B2C uh, CPG product. And it was a very interesting, not only branding exercise, uh, product development, like food, food technology exercise uh, for us, but ultimately what we decided is to scrap that uh, because we wanted to focus on you know, being able to create large amounts of, of the ingredient. And, and I think uh, through great feedback from our advisors and investors. Uh, it was kind of a difficult, like, you know, we, you're so attached to a CPG product that you have, um, but it was difficult, you know, for us to say, okay, you know what, we do need to scrap this. Uh, ultimately, that's what we ended up doing uh, and to, to focus on on B2B and, and building out and scaling up our ingredient model. Uh, but it was definitely something that that we started with. We thought it was going to be a great way to, to kind of enter the market. One thing that we learned very quickly, though, is that even if we did have our optimized protein at a very um, uh, at a very uh, large scale for manufacturing, that doesn't necessarily mean our CPG product would have been a success. And I think that was the big disconnect. That even if we had the ideal product or ingredient ready now, uh, that doesn't mean that the CPG was just going to take off. And I, I think that's the 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 key factor is that. Building a su successful CPG brand is extremely difficult, and I I really you know hats off to everyone who has been able to to make it happen. Um, but I think that um, that's something that um, is not really kind of what we as a startup need to be focusing on right now. Yeah, uh, and to give you, you some have more so many things. Yeah, 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 and to give you some more details, you know that CPG product was a protein bar, savory protein bar um, that. Uh, that you know was was quite tasty, and you know we're still using a couple of formats of it in our our product applications as 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 examples. Um, but you know going the CPG route, I think would have taken a lot of advertising dollars that might not have necessarily led to uh, continued uh, growth in the CPG sector. People in you know in in the retail space, uh, consumers that are purchasing products, they also. 
Um, they might love a product, but they might not love the format. And it's very costly to figure that out. And even if there's a, a, a format or product that's very popular at the time being, that doesn't mean that, you know, one or two years from now, you're going to have that popularity without continuing to fuel that fire. So, um, so I think, you know, CPG is, is, is very difficult. And uh, I think, you know, we're dealing with a little bit more of a more of a difficult prod- problem, even being able to scale our proteins out. But we can't be working on two two very difficult problems at the same time. We definitely need to be laser focused. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The for the factories themselves, are they basically like microbreweries in terms of what you need? The them like if you were just looking at it, what they would be like, or is there uh, is there like really uh, what what? Is there, what's the differentiation from something like that? Because most of them look like microbreweries. Yeah, so I mean, it'll look like a microbrewery from the from the standpoint that there will be, you know, fermentation tanks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think that if, but but you know, with the same in the same example, you go into many different types of ingredient companies, and it, and you'll see fermentation tanks, right? And so um, I think it's a good example to use when you know you're talking about talking to people about what kind of food and ingredient manufacturing uh, looks like at large scale. Um, but I think that, um, I think that, you know, what is even more, um, I think, uh, interesting is not only how the process works, but how you can lower costs of that process. What we see different types of food and ingredient companies do is strategically locate uh, their their facilities next to you know the, the source of uh, you know the input source. Um, you'll see this in many agricultural towns in the U.S. where you'll see multiple you know like different brands of food companies, food ingredient companies. Not only do they build facilities next to each other, they also have pipelines into each other because they'll use their raw inputs to, for their process. And I think um, that's something that uh, is even more interesting and exciting in terms of uh, scaling up the process because you you know when when we're talking about very very high volume, uh, every really cent off the total cost. Uh, will matter, and uh, and I think that's another thing that will really be a, a part of our long term approach is being able to optimize that as as much as possible. Um, you oftentimes hear about things like renewable energy, like solar, and that kind of thing. I think that stuff is important, um, but that stuff is you know those are technologies that are existing and and a little bit part of the overall facility. Um, costs that you can calculate right away. I think bigger factors in terms of building a facility is, you know, where can you strategically locate it to where you could get low cost inputs that will drive the cost down overall. What are, uh, what are some examples of inputs that you need to be close to? Yeah. I mean, uh, inputs like, uh, uh, you know, sugars or, or potato starches, things like that. I think that, uh, Boise, Idaho. Yeah, no. And actually, you know, it's funny that you you mentioned Idaho because, you know, places like Idaho or or any anything that's actually centrally located in the United States is is not only important from a standpoint of inputs, but also important from a standpoint of distribution, because in a perfect world, everybody talks about having 
very many small kind of like distributed microbreweries, you know, if we're using that term and that way there's less travel time to the overall destination. Um, mm -hmm. And you can achieve that with different types of food products. If you're doing like uh, vertical farming of different types of leafy greens and things like that. Um, but when we are, you know, when we need to produce very large amounts um, of, of certain products, there's a handful of places that, that we can place it not just in the US, but if you look at the, you know, if you look at things globally. So I think that's that's even more important is being somewhere that not only you have the input source, but is is also strategically placed to where you can get it to a hub and then from the hub to where it needs to be after that. Yeah. If you since you listen to my Paul episode, you already know my my pitch on Madison in the Midwest. Uh, I think especially if it's uh, something like what you're building. The, you're going to get way more for your buck. And honestly, people should give me a percentage for every, all the business I sent <laughs> to this region uh, because the cost, like compared to the coast, uh, and you've lived in California, it sounds like your whole life. But, like for what you pay out there, I recently was talking to someone who has, I don't we haven't talked about square footage of your lab, but someone's pay, someone around the Bay Area is paying $44,500 a month for just their R&D lab space. It's not even their production thing. And that's, for for that amount of money, you could literally you could own like a, like a castle like out here like you just you'd have like the best of the best out here. Um, anyone out here who has nuance on that, please email me if you disagree. But um, like Tennessee and Madison are great, especially if you have like if you want to repurpose some stuff, which is great. It, it doesn't sound like uh, the factory itself is a part of what's special about your startup in the sense of like Tesla and they made a gigafactory. They literally designed a whole factory to slowly be scalable. They're on like phase two now of like three to four phases. Uh, in, in Nevada. It was a really cool uh, uh, talk that Elon just gave about it, but um, it doesn't sound like that's a component. Uh, like You're going to integrate new technology into it, but you're not innovating new technology and building a factory custom with this idea of like a gigafactory, but for the protein that you're making, for instance. And actually, as, as, as we were talking, I was thinking like, well, what if someone made like that type of factory for like different proteins and then like they could just do it for everybody. But um, uh, so I, we already know my pitch on the Midwest. And uh, if you haven't checked out Anchorage, Alaska, uh, that'll be pretty great, but uh, Madison's probably pretty good in terms of like repurposing what's already there and then maybe like modernizing it with some automation technology. Um, I don't know if you have been out there or not, but if you ever are, let me know and we can, we can meet up because it's yeah. within drive. Well, so I, I grew up in Chica in the Chicago suburbs, actually. So um, oh, that's right. You went to college near me. You went to yes, uh, yeah. well, I, 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 I went to U of I in, in Champaign and. And, you know, if you look at agriculture there, it's, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of corn, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that could be a, a very nice, uh, you know, potential input uh, if, you, if you're building something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I actually want to go back to your Tesla example, because I think it is important to look at this type of scale and manufacturing like that, not in the in the sense that there will be like different phases and expansions and, and things like that, uh, but more in the sense that you do need to be able to build, um, excuse me, you do need to be able to build state-of-the-art technology that, that is able to produce very, very large amounts. Now, one thing that was interesting about that, that actually presentation that, that was, was given at the, uh, at the Gigafactory in Nevada, um, is that, you know, they, they did kind of like, you know, pan over to the, to the members, uh, the team members there quite a bit. Um, and I think that's so important because, uh, you typically don't see that in traditional food sector. I mean, that's not a food uh, technology, but you don't see that yeah. too much in the, in the food technology. Like, um, you know, sure. We've seen, 
you know, maybe uh, tours given on how it's made on, on, on maybe some sort of food products, or maybe McDonald's goes to their chicken distributors to, to prove to us that the pink slime is not actually part of the process of creating chicken nuggets. Um, but I, I think we do need to be a little bit more open about what, what food technology um, uh, is and, and where it can come from. I think companies in the uh, you know, cultured meat or cultivated meat space do a very good job of that at these early stages, um, you know, offering tours or kind of like having more openness into what their facilities look like. I think that's very important. Um, yes, and so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think, I think, um, I think we, we will see uh, more examples of that as different groups start building more uh, facilities for alternative protein production. Uh, and I think it's very important. And I, and I do think, you know, uh, for example, being in, in, in anywhere in the Midwest, I think is, is, uh, is a good place to be. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted like distribution, you probably should pick Tennessee, but uh, Madison probably has a lot of stuff that you need. Cause there's like, it's like the microbrewery capital of the world. In fact, uh, Wisconsin is so much more likely to uh, the pe- the population there to binge drink than anywhere else in the United States to, to binge drink. Yeah, they didn't okay. want to raise the minimum minimum age for drinking, but then uh, the federal government like cut off funding until they would move it. They just love their alcohol, so they they love their microbreweries. It's like the capital of the United States. Um, so this is what you have going on here. Uh, you're building out a team on this. Is there anyone you're missing that you need? So, so yes. Um, so we're, we're always hiring. And, and I say that because it, it's, it's ever so true. In my previous startup, we were working on Android development. We literally had a, uh, you know, job postings for, for senior Android developers all the time, uh, because you never know who's going to come along that could radically change your business. And, and we've been in situations in that startup where we needed somebody really fast and we, you know, we, we did rapid hires to, to finish, you know, a a type of project in the food industry or at Balletic Foods. um, We, we do need a lot of different types of roles. And so um, right now, what I'm doing is I'm focusing on product development and also sales. And so if there are any food technologists, food scientists out there um, that, that are listening, uh, we would definitely be interested in, in chatting with you. The, if you go to bulleticfoods.com careers, there's a, a series of, of job postings there. There are some R&D um, roles as well, but again, that's not kind of what I'm focusing on. Um, product development and uh, and we are doing quite a bit with um, software tooling to uh, uh, optimize some of the the processes that we have in the in the lab as well as as the kitchen. Um, but uh, but yeah, so check out balleticfoods.com/careers. Um, I think that uh, I think that what you were saying earlier about location, for example, Anchorage, Alaska. I think that would be a very good quality of life if you if you were working in Alaska and and working at a, a, a facility there, um, but you definitely need a lot of people to, um, to you know that are specifically focused in this type of technology. And I think that's that's one thing that is is oftentimes the most difficult aspect of any startup. And I'm sure you know this as well with uh, with your current startups is that finding the right people is very difficult. And so uh, I am worried that, you know, if, if we did have some sort of R&D outside of one of these hubs, um, then it might be difficult. 
we're actually in Davis, which is about an hour outside of San Francisco. And even though there's a great university here, a lot of good agricultural technology here, uh, it's still very difficult to uh, to find the the right roles and, and people that are interested in working with us in a uh, for an alternative protein company. Um, and so I think that's changing, but I think that um, I think in the early days, location is very important when you do need to find some of those key hires. Not saying that they're not in Madison, um, but but right now, you know, this is where we are and and I think it's it's important. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to pay for someone to, to move out. That's just like an unnecessary expense, like, especially if you're like being conservative with your money. But at the same time, the Midwest is literally where all the food comes from. So there's probably a lot of uh, food scientists out here that would probably uh, move across. And 150,000 software people in the tech just got laid off in the last year. So there's lots of good people out there. I know several of them. Um, you also put on a conference. Uh, why do you keep putting on a conference every year? Well, you know, why isn't like one good enough and you go on doing something else? But why, what has you coming back? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've been hosting the Cultured Meat Symposium. This will be the sixth year. And um, and originally the podcast and the conference was a way for us to learn about what's missing in the industry. In 2018, it was a pretty early industry. Uh, and then eventually start a cultured meat company. So that was the original goal. Um, after a couple of years of learning about the industry, we identified that there are a lot of great startups that are working on the solving the problem of, of cultured meat. And that's where kind of the idea of Balletic Foods uh, came about. So Balletic Foods not being a cultured meat company um, is, is creating protein in a different way, whereas cultured meat companies are now thriving having tastings, starting to go into larger parts of production. I think that's really exciting. Um, for us, we are still very connected to the alternative protein scene in general. Um, and the conference allows us to kind of keep our eye on the ball and, and see where the industry is going. Now, sometimes people ask us, well, why are you just doing cultured meat? Why don't you touch other types of alternative protein as well? And you know, our focus is is pretty laser focused on the cultured meat symposium on cultured meat or cultivated meat. Um, we just don't have time and resources to go into other types of alternative protein. If we did, uh, then, you know, all of us that are running that conference are working full-time jobs or are at startups. Um, if we were to expand the reach beyond cultured meat, uh, it would take a lot more resources. Now, we've talked... Uh, together about you know what we could do to maybe expand that but i think now all of us are kind of more focused on our individual startups and, and things like that so cultured meat mm -hmm. symposium is is um is something that we're really excited about every fall we're starting to see a lot of growth in that sector outside of just the traditional alternative protein or biotech folks that are involved um and uh and we'll see how long we keep running it. Um, but so far it's been really interesting and a good exercise for us to, to, to run it. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I haven't gone yet, but that's mainly cause I am a turtle and I don't go out much and I'm very slow to do things, but, but I do want to, I'll, I'll come around, uh, uh, especially this year. I think I'll be traveling more, um, which should be fun. Cause I have a bunch of interviews, uh, in-person interviews planned. Um, <clears throat> so we've, any, anything, uh, so you're doing sales and for 
your food startup. What are your, if you can't talk about sales, like what are some of your objectives for 2023, just in terms of like what you're working on? Yes. For Balletic. Yeah. Yeah. I think for Balletic, um, one of the things that's important for us is to be able to find groups, organizations that are interested in experimenting with our different types of uh, protein product lines. And so, um, it's not part of our long-term business model, but we are looking at some maybe smaller players or even restaurants or restaurant groups or chefs to be able to start playing around with it. We have a, a commercial kitchen that, that we're using to develop different types of products and product applications, but we've only done kind of testing on that internally. So one of our goals for this quarter is to be able to get it out and have some external folks play around with some of the uh, early samples that we, we have to kind of see if we can get any additional feedback. Um, so that's one thing that we're doing now. Um, we're gonna be fundraising later this year. So I think as much data as we can collect now and also connections that we can make now will help us with uh, kind of this next round of fundraising that we'll do, uh, I think is important. Um, and so that that's kind of you know what my focus is on now, really kind of finding different groups, organizations that are interested in sampling and playing with the different types of proteins that we have. Do you have some form of like letter of intent that they signed to like show the VCs or what, how do you handle that type of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's the relationships that we have with the folks that we're talking to now. Um, I think at any time we can say, hey, get this LOI or MOU uh, signed. And, and you know, we have um, uh, a, a kind of a goal to, to share that in our, our data room with investors later. But um, one thing that that I've learned is that, um, you know, the relationships are a lot more important than just, you know, some sort of LOI. There will be investors that say you need LOIs and there'll be other investors that that will really ask you like, okay, who are you talking to? How are they, you know, how much are they interested in that kind of thing? Um, you know, even if there is an LOI sign, that doesn't mean that's going to lead to any type of, um, you know, direct sales, especially when our product is not going to be ready uh, at, at a very large scale for, uh, for quite some time. Um, mm. That is something that we are looking at, of course. Um, and I think, you know, there, there, there are different types of investors. I think in the alternative protein space, there are a lot of investors that do come from uh, like the animal welfare space. Um, it, I think at first it was interesting for us to, to kind of approach them. Um, but you know, the, the second or third slide on our pitch deck is, is literally says that animal proteins perform better than plant-based proteins. And so we, we quickly realized that, okay, they don't like that, that we're saying that animal proteins perform better. But then again, you know, we believe that we have data to kind of showcase that. Um, and so I, I think, I think for us, it's, it's really interesting to, to find the person investor or investment group that is really interested in our mission that may or may not be someone who's mission aligned. And when I say mission aligned, I mean like animal welfare mission. Um, but uh, everything that we're doing, you know, from now until the fall will be focused on uh, really building a data set to, sh to showcase not only what we're doing in, in the lab, but how we can have a good output on sales. And I'd love to chat with you about, you know, I don't know, if, if there's more time, but you know, what a, a clean sales process looks like, because um, a lot of times it's, it's one of the things that uh, uh, when we're trying to look for SDRs or, or sales development reps um, it, it's, there's this misalignment um, 
And, uh, and I think knowing a good sales process is, is really important. Yeah. Well, uh, off the, off the cuff, I would say always hire two salespeople when you're starting out because you don't really know who's doing a bad job, but, uh, <laughs> how much and money not, do you need to only, raise? No, go ahead. I was going to say, not only is that good advice, but you know, it also, you know, oftentimes people say that develops some sort of like competition amongst the two. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, competition is, it can be healthy in, in, a, in a workplace, but, you know, when, when we're looking at some of, um, some of the goals, you know, people have from a sales standpoint, um, the outreach for some people is like, oh, I'm going to make, you know, two or three calls per day or, or outreach a day. And, and the fact that, you know, people are in sales saying that they're going to make two or three is, is quite crazy. Whereas, you know, then you have somebody who's like, okay, we've got to hit 60, 60 a week, 120 a week, uh, and, and then yeah. go from there. Uh, it's a totally different mindset. So I think, you know, sales and business is such a broad spectrum, but B2B sales is something that is a lot more kind of laser focused and, and, you know, there's not as much BS, right? It's very easy to filter out the BS when somebody gets approached with a sales call. Um, whereas if, if someone is actually interested, they're going to respond and, and, and yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Well, one thing that I do is, uh, when I'm talking, when I'm like, when I have something new that I'm working on, I'll call people and I'll say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And if uh, they politely entertain the, the idea or say no, I'm like, great. And then I just say, have a nice day. I'll talk to you later. But then the people who spend the next 40 minutes tell me how bad they need one a building. It's like, great. I'm going to sell you one a building. Um, but uh, two, it's just a, a general joke answer that uh, I hear good things about. But um, for, for your startup, the, how much money do you need to raise and what will be the result of raising it? Like what would be de-risked in the company? It would be like a factory beta or something. Uh, what was the second part of that question? Yeah, what uh, what would be the result of the money? Like oh, what would, yeah. What would result from it? Right. So so um, as of now, we have brought on what we call an accelerator round. So we're going after a pre-seed round of uh, $3 million in the fall. And that will really allow us to take the process that we're doing in the lab right now and take it to the next level. What I mean by next level is, is, is building more and also fine-tuning and optimize that even more. Again, that's a little bit separate than what I'm doing, which is uh, kind of, you know, finding customers for that long-term vision when we are, are able to produce more. Uh, but the initial kind of pre-seed funding will be used for, for what's going on there in R&D. Um, and, and, you know, earlier you were mentioning that, uh, you know, cost per square footage is, is very expensive. And we're seeing that now uh, as well. And one huge benefit of moving out to Davis versus being in the Bay Area of course, you have the issue of talent, but um, you know it's it's like a fourth of the price than it is the Bay Area, right? I know it's cheaper maybe if you go out to the Midwest, but um, even saving that much um, is uh, is is really important when San Francisco is just an hour away. Yeah, you can bust people around. There's a, a startup that I know out there that I convinced them. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I hypothetically convinced some people to like partner with a bunch of other startups, and then now they have like shuttles that they uh they they came into because of that so instead of like something they couldn't afford on their own they partnered with a couple other startups and then they got shuttles that would like go to where people are like an hour away and bring them straight to their business it was pretty nice um where normally you'd have to be like google to afford something like that so there's a lot of opportunities even if you are an hour away to like get great people coming out your way um so that's that's kind of blight is there anything else about blight that we haven't touched on that you're, you guys are up to I think that's it about um, Balletic. Um, I think that- Balletic, uh, thank you. Yeah, Balletic, yeah. Um, you know, and, and maybe maybe one thing that I'll end off on Balletic is, you know, where the name comes from, 
Um, and so, you know, ballet, as we were starting to look at it, um, ballet is this art form that requires intense um, focus and, and dedication. And the early stages of, of being in the lab um, on the R&D side, you know, that's what you need. You need intense focus and, and dedication, being able to go um, in whenever your samples are ready, not just when it's convenient to go in and, and that kind of thing. And I think that was what was really interesting for us. Um, of course, we also like the idea that ballet is a, is a very high intensity sport. Uh, and, that, and when we're building optimized nutrition, especially for protein, there's that kind of relationship there. Um, but yeah, ballet requires high intensity and focus and, and so does balletic. Yeah. Well, my only thought on the name is don't have like a woman whisper it in a commercial or else you're like really close to Gillette. <laughs> but uh I'm gonna you, you that said that, no. yeah uh, or you can do it deliberately and then uh, get sued but uh so yeah. uh you said that it's gmo de derived but like then product is not gmo which the difference is probably something that i have to have like an expert on here to to talk about but i'm curious like from a branding standpoint what do you think why do you think people care about these things considering like that like an average apple has been engineered through selective breeding more than the pop tart yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, pro GMO, right. And yeah, um, I, I, I do feel that there are, um, you know, it just wasn't marketed very well, right. I think there are a couple different things. If you look at historically that made GMO the bad guy, whether it's, you know, Monsanto or whatever. Um, but, you know, it has come to, to play where now people are, are very against it when in reality, GMO is good for the future of the food system. I think that um, although there is this kind of hump that we need to get over, um, I think as we continue to develop food products, um, we will kind of embrace that. There are a couple of companies out there that are boasting proudly GMO. Uh, I think that's important. I, I thought it was actually interesting to have a podcast called the Proudly GMO Podcast. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's a, I think, you know, a big debate that has a couple different, um, it's drivers, like right. Yeah. They're definitely nuclear. Um, usually if I'm on a limited panel, I try to avoid that question. Otherwise the whole panel can be about that. Um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily think GMO is a bad thing in our process. It's not like we're actively trying to make it non-GMO. That's just the way it is. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, um, you know, more foods will be boasting that proudly GMO label in the future. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for individuals or companies who are interested in getting involved in the cell ag space? Yeah, I think, um, the number one advice I have is, is reach out, uh, reach out to folks that are interested in, um, or reach out to folks that are in the space you'll find that they're probably interested in, in helping you out. Uh, I, I want to give out a shout out to folks like Paul Shapiro, where, you know, he was one of the first few people that we reached out to. We weren't even sure if this was would be a good idea, uh, but he responded quickly and said, hey, you know, I'd love to be on the podcast. And, um, you know, another person, Dan Lining, was the first ever episode that we recorded. Um, and... Uh, uh, and then, you know, that, that turned into, to something more now folks are reaching out to us and, and as much as we can, you know, we tried to, um, 
connect them to other individuals or empower them to uh, work in the field or, or um, start a startup in, in, in the field. And so I think that's that's important. Um, add people on LinkedIn, follow people on Twitter. Uh, you know, before being in this, you know, world of, of science, uh, Twitter was, was just something that uh, I just casually browsed on. But after being in the alternative protein space, uh, Twitter is very active for scientists. And, yeah. uh, and you know, now Twitter is going through some changes, but uh, I think the changes are for the better. So uh, reach out to people on Twitter, follow people on Twitter. Uh, you'll be surprised that, at how many people are, are will be excited that you're interested in cell ag. Yeah, if you want a litmus test uh, who to reach out to, if you find them on Twitter and you're, and you interact with more than three of their posts over the course of three days, uh, you can reach out to them and then they'll they'll know who you are. Um, so you wrote a children's book. I know that's on our, our docket to talk about. And why did you write a ch- children's book? You, I know you're, it's like getting people aware of it, but uh, yeah, you know, so, not like YA or something. I don't know. Or like no, a no, yeah. Novel. So so um, so so when we were started with the podcast, the number one question that we would get is when is cultured meat going to be available, right? People that were interested in it were either interested in it or completely against it, but they wanted to know when it was going to be available. And speaking to, you know, and when you, when you, when you would Google it in like 2018, you would hear, oh, it's going to be available at the end of the year. Um, and then people assume that every Whole Foods is going to have cultured meat by the <laughs> end of 2018 or 19 or 20. Um, and that's just not the case, right? We've seen companies do great things in terms of green green lights on FDA uh, or or even selling cultured meat in in Singapore, uh, but in reality, you know, when we started thinking about this idea of the children's book, it's going to be another ten to fifteen years before cultured meat is is widely available, right? Um, and that's that's kind of most of the feedback we would get from scientists. If we would talk to, if you go to conferences that were more marketing focused or VC focused, it would always be, oh, next two or three years, right? Uh, but if we would go to more scientific conferences like the um, uh, International uh, Scientific Conference on Cultured Meat in the Netherlands, you know, you'd see researchers say, hey, maybe in the next five to ten years, this could be a viable solution for doing X, Y, and Z in the in the cultured meat space. And so, you know, I was. Um, I was interviewing somebody from ProVeg and they had this initiative that was involving um, young children to pursue and be more interested in plant-based eating. And that's when I thought, you know, who's going to be making purchasing decisions in the next 10 to 15 years, right? And we always hear that some of the highest uh, spending power for a market demographic is actually uh, teens. And because they're they're spending money, that's their parents' money, but they're spending a lot of it on different types of you know new products or food products or whatever it may be. Um, and so, who's going to be making impactful purchasing decisions in the next ten to fifteen years? It's the current you know age three to seven demographic, uh, and that's where the idea of the uh, of the children's book came about. Um, and the you know the children's book, I have a copy here. You know where do hot dogs come from? Um, and uh, let's see, there we go. Uh, yeah. The blur is is consuming it. Um, you know, we wanted to create a a book that, in a very high level, discussed what cultured meat is. We didn't want to go into the details of 
animal slaughter. We didn't want to go into the details of too many of the details of the science. And uh, we, we just go over the basics of what it could be. The actual scientific part uh, is, is, is really taken by this concept developed by uh, a Dutch engineer that, uh, that has this like machine, what he calls the meat machine, that has different kind of capsules or, or segments that uh, you know the cells go into and then what comes out is a, is a food product. And so we thought that that was the perfect way to uh, explain the science at an early age. Um, and, and I think, you know, our experience of, of writing this book has been very interesting in that we saw that folks that we didn't think would be interested in the topic were actually very interested. Um, and so that's kind of why we wrote the children's book, who's going to be purchasing in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it's, you know, it's been a wild ride. I'll just say that. Yeah, well, I think the sequel, who's going to be purchasing in the next 10 to 15 years would be a, a pretty good one too, about financial literacy or something as yeah. it re refers to uh, food. Um, uh, outside of a children's book, what, what are some books that you recommend people check out if in the, I, the age group, doesn't matter. Yeah, so, you know, we used to use the term clean meat to refer to the, you know, cell-based meat or cultured meat or cultivated meat technology. Um, you know, that is a, is a very good introductory insight to what cultured meat is. Uh, of course, uh, by one of your former guests that we've mentioned a couple of times, Mr. Paul Shapiro. Uh, I think clean meat is still a very good introductory. Um, there's a, another book, Technically Food by Larissa Zimbaroff, who uh, really outlines a lot of different novel technologies in the food space. Um, and, uh, and she does a good job of breaking them down and also showing a little bit more of, of maybe the founder stories, if, if you will. Um, so those are two books that I think are, are very interesting, um, to kind of get your, your feet wet into the space. Uh, I think there are a couple others that are out there that are specifically related to, to cultured meat. Um, but I haven't done too much of a, of a, of a deep dive into them, but, uh, but yeah, those are two books I would recommend. Anything not in the in the space? Just a random book you recommend people check out? Well, I I'm a I mentioned it earlier of uh, the Dale Carnegie book, but uh, I highly recommend um, you know if you haven't already, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, because you know anytime you're working at either a startup or or even any type of professional job, I think it's really important to kind of think about how other people are. Um, are, 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 you know, putting, put, put, you're putting yourself in other people's shoes to kind of uh, come together for a common goal. So it sounds cheesy and it's, a, it's, I think has sold more copies than the Bible or something like that. Um, but in our, you know, in, the, in, in 2023, it's oftentimes uh, overlooked. So it's definitely something that is, is a timeless, uh, timeless book to look into. Sweet. And then I think, you already gave the website earlier, but with slash career. So I think just checking that out would be good. Is there anything else that uh, people should check out to stay up to date with what you're working on? I think, um, I think that's the, that's the best, you know, we, we are starting to put together all of those resources that we've accumulated over the years on futurefoodshow.com. 
Uh, we're actually preparing to launch a, a new portal for that, where you can access some of the videos and recordings from the Cultured Meat Symposium, some of the data that we've collected, uh, uh, different types of case studies and eBooks that we've put together. Um, so futurefoodshow.com is, is, is gonna be a good place to, to go to find resources. And then we also link out to other resources there as well.